Hello, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Faithful Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Dakota Kaufman. We're on episode three, and today we're going to be going through Galatians chapter three, verses one through 29, so the whole chapter. And we're going to be diving into a little bit about the law, a little bit about faith. Um, Galatians chapter three is very doctrinal in substance, so we're going to dive into it about Galatians and what Paul is trying to teach us here. This shall be written for the generation to come that aren't for sale but I must maintain something by standing behind this pulpit there are some things that though death is inevitable there is some things though persecution and tribulation is inevitable there are still some things that you cannot buy out When is the last time you've been to church where you've seen young people under such conviction because the people of God have been on their face? And there's such a concern and there's such an agony that young people are falling on their faces and calling on God because a spirit of conviction is called down from heaven upon them? How many churches have you been lately where you hear a word comes forth that so burns in your soul? You know it comes from heaven. You know it comes from the heart of God. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? So Galatians 3 seems to be, in short, the question, law or faith. And Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4 are both very doctrinal in substance. Galatians 3 and 4, three words are repeated frequently. Faith is repeated 14 times. Law, 19 times. And promise, 11 times. So obviously there's a lot of substance in Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4. This episode will be a little lengthier than most, um, but there is a lot of stuff in Galatians chapter 3. Really enjoyed studying this chapter. Um, there's just a lot that, that you could kind of eat on and chew on. So, um, But Paul, for the first time really since chapter 1 verses 6 and 9 through somewhere in there, he turns kind of from himself and his pedigree and his resume, right? And he turns kind of to the to the Galatians. And he presents a series of rhetorical questions. And he's essentially asking the Galatians whether they have traded the ministry of God's spirit for works of the law. So now he invites them to consider how they came to experience the spirit, whether it was through the law or whether it was through faith. And so in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, it's an extremely emotionally charged address to the Galatians. And it's one of the most charged ones you'll find in all of Paul's letters. But Paul, he isn't referring to mental incompetence or anything like that. He's referring to a lack of wisdom. And the word he uses is a Greek word that f- refers to something like senseless or unintelligent. And throughout all of Galatians, really, we find Paul pretty upset that the Galatians have even fell for something like this. Usually, in the opening of, of his letters, Paul would would give a word of commendation for the churches he was addressing, or he would thank God for their faithfulness. But this wasn't the case in Galatians. It doesn't have any word of thanksgiving and no commendation that we can find, especially here in the beginning. And then at the end of his letters, Paul often exchanged greetings with members of the congregation and expressed his intention to visit them. But this wasn't the case at the end of Galatians. There wasn't any greetings just a final salvo or volley at those who were bewitching the Galatians. And this isn't Paul's first or only rebuke of these foolish Galatians. The letter's opening salvo is similarly chiding, but here Paul doesn't simply repeat his earlier rebuke. 
So he kind of goes on and clarifies the issues that are at stake right now. And that the Galatians are really attempting to do the unthinkable. They're contemplating circumcision and the extra things, right? And they're trying to finish the Christian race by the flesh rather than by spirit. The word that Paul uses here for foolish Galatians um, is bewitched, essentially. Um, So Greek speakers use the term bewitch or baskino to describe what an enchanter might do to jinx someone or trick somebody. And in Galatians 3 and 1, he's saying, I'm fascinated that you have so lost your wits. And Themistius says that the Galatians were naturally very acute in intellect. They were intelligent people. And so Paul, that's why Paul was just in wonder that they could be so misled in something like this, in this case. So it, it is possible that Paul is hinting that some transcendent force is at play in the Galatians' positive response to the false teachers. Um, But since he uses the term right after calling the Galatians foolish, however, it's more likely that he intends intends simply to say that the Galatians conduct is irrational. And this is being measured by the standard of the gospel of Christ crucified. Compared to that, it makes no sense for them to have to go back to circumcision is what Paul is explaining to them. Just in verse one here, he says, you know, you foolish Galatians who hath bewitched you. He's saying, "I'm, I'm so surprised that this is what you have fallen for. Um, you know, whenever you've been taught the gospel of Christ crucified. So most people would interpret verse one and for this to just be a reviling rather than just a godly reprehension. And Martin Luther said it like this. He said, did Paul then give a bad example or was he spiteful against the churches of Galatia because he called them foolish and bewitched? No, not so. For with a Christian zeal, it is lawful for an apostle, a pastor, or preacher sharply to reprove the people committed to his charge. And such reprovings are both fatherly and godly. For in chastising my brother, my child, my scholar, or subject in this sort, I seek not his destruction, but his profit and welfare. And so I, Martin Luther's saying, I agree with Paul because he is he's he's correcting them in a godly way saying hey this is the gospel of Christ and you're adding a whole bunch of stuff to it um, but you don't need anything else and and so Martin Luther's saying Paul cared so much about these Galatians um, we know this was one of Paul's first mission trips right and so this probably had a special place in his heart and I imagine it probably troubled him extremely right that they had fallen into a trap like this that they were adding a whole bunch of stuff to the grace of the gospel of Christ so let's get into verses 1 through 5 here. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. So Paul asked them, he said, did you receive the Spirit by something you did, or did you receive it by the hearing of faith of the gospel? So Paul, he said, Jesus has been set before you. He is crucified among you, but you still think you have some sort of ability to make it better? He says, tell me one thing. He says, you begin in the Spirit, but now you can finish it by the flesh. Can you accomplish what was begun in faith in Christ and only Christ? Can you accomplish that in your flesh? Then he says, does your flesh have any ability to please God, except it be by faith in Christ? 
And I, I like the phrase here. Have you suffered so many things in vain? If it be yet in vain. And then, so he's, he's saying the no doubt the Galatians had endured some persecution for believing in Christ. We, we know that obviously, by the way, the Judaizers had been polluting the gospel of Christ in Galatia. But then he says, if it be yet in vain, Paul can't quite bring himself to believe that it is in vain. He adds this little tidbit in there to maybe remind them of their first love in Christ when they had first heard the gospel to, to maybe stir up their minds to remembrance of that great day and to put a glimmer of hope in their minds as well that what they're going through and what they're suffering is not in vain at all, but rather for the glory and edification to lift Christ up and to establish the church on yet another victory to further solidify the foundation of the churches at Galatia. So he's saying, if it be yet in vain, if you're going to suffer, Paul's saying, hey, it's it's not in vain if you suffer for the gospel of Christ. There's going to be something that will come out of it. And then in verse 5, Paul asks a profound question that sets up a great contrast between the law and faith, and which Paul addresses further as we go throughout, go on through chapter 3 and even into chapter 4 in our next session. But he asks them about the miracles that they've seen. He says, were they done because the law exists or he said, or because of faith in God's miracle working power, or did the miracles happen because of the works of the law or your deeds in obeying the law? And we, we know that not to be the case. We know the law has no ability to perform a miracle, right? No, miracles happen because of faith in God. And as Christians, we need a fresh supply of the spirit every single day. We live the Christian life only by the spirit of God and in reliance upon the presence and power of the Holy Ghost. Some of us have been trying to live the Christian life in our own strength, and that's why we find so many things taxing and even tedious in our walk with God. We're trying to live for God apart from the empowering presence of God, but that simply will not work. The only way to live to God is to no longer live in ourselves, but to find Christ living in us. So let's go back to the cross of Christ. Look to the Word of God, and let's not begrudge the suffering God sends our way, for these are the very means by which God supplies His Spirit to us. This is what we need to keep us running the race. And that's what Paul is kind of saying here in verse 5. He says, did these things happen because of the law, or was it because of your faith in God? And so Paul is elaborating that it's only by faith that these things happen. The law has no ability to transform somebody. The law has no ability to heal somebody. The, the law has no ability to do any of those things, but faith in God does. All right, moving on, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. So let's dive into verse 6 here. It says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Paul continues after verse 5 about the difference and illustrating that difference between law and faith. And with a model of great faith, he gives us an illustrational answer about Abraham. So it's almost as if Paul is telling them and saying, did Abraham do what he did just because of the law or his following of the law? No, he, he did the things he did. He sojourned because he had faith that God was exactly who he said he was. See, the law had no ability to accomplish anything in man. The law was the standard bearer, right? But faith is the belief that God is going to do what he said he's going to do, even when we can't see it. So Paul answers verse five and he says, think about Abraham. That's the answer. It's by faith. It's not anything that Abraham did in the law. It was because Abraham stepped out in faith and said, God, I believe. I believe that you are exactly who you said you are. All right, verse 7, verses 7 through 10 here. It says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith 
the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not, and all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So as Gentiles, we know and we conclude that we have been grafted into the kingdom of God. And in verses 7 through 10, Paul is explaining this. He says, Foreseeing that God would justify the heathen. Paul was referring to the Gentiles there. And he said that this gospel that is being preached unto the Gentiles has already been preached unto Abraham. They which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham, is what Paul's saying. Thank God for that. God's wonderful design of salvation was for all that believe. Not a certain tribe, not a certain race, or certain sect of religious followers. No, all nations will be blessed. And that isn't talking about countries. It's talking about the people of the nations, of all nations, that believe will be blessed with faithful Abraham. Now, for some, this may sound quaint, but not that exciting. If we were raised in church, perhaps there's a certain fascination with Abraham, right? We've He's that mysterious character of Sunday school stories and songs, and, you know, Father Abraham had many sons. But if we weren't raised in the church, we'll likely have trouble seeing any relevance in receiving Abraham's blessing. You'd much rather find a way to get into Mark Zuckerberg's good graces or Elon Musk's, but the Christ followers in Galatia were certainly interested in Abraham's blessing, obviously. In fact, that's what all the fuss was about. Paul wrote this most heated of all his letters in order to sort out these issues of who can receive Abraham's blessing, who can receive the gospel of Christ. There was no more relevant question for Paul or for the Galatians, and it would have doubtless been of interest to the Judaizers who were stirring up trouble in Galatia. But interest in Abraham's blessing isn't simply some historical interest. It's more relevant now than ever. Over 3 billion people, Jews, Christianity, Islam, all have a vested interest in Abraham, as all three trace their start back to God's promise of blessing to Abraham. To relay the gospel of Christ effectively, we must understand how significant this promise to Abraham was and is today. The gospel of Jesus Christ was preached all the way in the beginning of Genesis to the book of Revelation. The gospel of Christ was foretold in this promise that was given unto Abraham that now we can be grafted into this kingdom of God as Gentiles through faith. There isn't anything extra that we can do or anything extra that we can add, but God sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was the promise that God gave to Abraham. That was the promise. So Paul has talked about faith, but now he shifts gears to the law. Verses 7 through 10 here is where we're still at. And he explains that those that are of the law are under the curse of the law. So what's it mean to be under the curse of the law? What is Paul saying here? So Paul is drawing from Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26. He says, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. And then in Deuteronomy 28 and 58, he says, If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God. So he's explaining that everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, who relies on the law for their salvation is under the curse of the law. The curse is that you have to abide by all things in that law without any mistakes. And this is just further confirmation on verses 9. On verse 9, um, the Romans chapter 3, 19 through 20 says, Now we know that 
what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So it puts this in perspective for us and explains that no man renders this type of obedience for no one is perfect. So in the question, law or faith, Paul is explaining to them that nothing that you have right now is because of the law. It is only by faith in the gospel of Christ. But to be of the same faith as Abraham also means that this faith of ours is an obedient faith. So while Abraham is indeed the model of faith, his faith was no more his faith was no mere intellectual assent. His was a living and active faith, not a dead one. His faith was what led him to follow God, even when he had no idea where God was going to take him. His was a faith that enabled him to offer up his own son, Isaac. So what is what is the curse of the law? The curse of the law is not believing in the gospel of Christ. For we know that we have no ability in and of ourselves to obtain perfection by and of the law. It is only through the blood of Christ that we are able to obtain any sort of righteousness. So practically speaking, to live our life as an Abraham lookalike or to have faith like Abraham had, it means that we'll need to go, that we'll need to leave, and that we'll need to seek. God's first word to Abraham was go. So too, if we follow in his footsteps, we'll need to go. Just like Abraham, we'll also need to leave. We'll have to say goodbye to the life that we perhaps imagined for ourselves, the comforts, the perks, the benefits. Instead, it will mean going with Jesus outside the camp to bear the approach he himself bore. But we'll only truly go and leave if we, like Abraham, are seeking a better future from God and trusting in that promise. It is said of Abraham that he lived his life as a nomad because he was looking forward a city that hath foundations, whose maker and builder is God. And that's Hebrews 11.10. All right, verses 11 through 14. Let's read these. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith, and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So no man is justified in the sight of God by the law. Just like we just read a while ago and talked about no man can obtain perfection. We know that. We, we know we can't be perfect. And the law requires, if we had no intermediary, if we had nothing, no sacrifice, the law would require us to be completely perfect. So no man is justified in the sight of God, but God by the law, Paul says. So what is the condition to live a pleasing life before God? It's to live by faith, to have faith in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. That is the only condition, the only way that we can live a pleasing life before God. So the law discovers our disease, but the gospel supplies the remedy. The law reveals our utter helplessness to rid ourselves of sin. We find our, in ourselves in critical moments, a time where we become aware that our sinful desires are more powerful than the prohibition of what the law says not to do. And this disposition of our heart is the point, that decisive point for the question. Does the holy law 
and a good commandment make us holy, just, and good men? The answer to this is and remains a most decided no. We have no ability to find in ourselves anything to obtain victory over sin. Nothing. We have nothing at all. The only way for that is to have faith in Christ. Now, does this mean we ignore the law or do away with the law? God forbid is what it says. No, it simply means that when we do mess up, and, and we will, we will mess up, but it means that Christ is the transgression bearer and that we have an advocate with the Father is what the Scripture tells us. And I, I must add that this in no way gives a Christian the right to sin and it'd be okay. I, I think we all know that, but many have used the liberty of Christ as a cloak of sin. Let it not be so with us. No doubt God will hold us accountable for our deeds. So let our deeds be under the blood of Christ, for he was made the curse for us. So we know that we have, we, we, we struggle. We, we, we have temptations. We have things that we deal with on the daily and our sinful desires are more powerful than the law tells us not to do. And so what, what, what is the ability to conquer those things and, and to say, no, I'm going to serve God. There is no ability in us. Zero, none, not at all. It's only through faith in Christ and in the gospel of Christ and his work on Calvary. That's it. That's the only way that we get anywhere in this life with God. That's the only thing that we can do. So to anyone who may find themselves struggling in this race or serving God, I want you to take an introspective look and ask yourself, am I trying to walk this thing in my own strength? There's a great barrier to our justification in Christ. That barrier is that we have no ability or strength in ourselves to cross that great divide. It's in Christ and in only Christ. So if you're struggling to serve God, I would like to encourage you to get out of the way. Let God help you. And if you're struggling serving God, ask yourself, am I trying to do this on my own? Am I trying to do this by myself? So, faith ends the conflict with the law. Now we can receive the promise of the Spirit through faith so that our heart is it's no longer in a place of fleshly strength to keep the law, right? Because we don't have that ability. No, it's, it's now in a place of faith in Christ and in His work on Calvary so that now our strength lies in Him, not in of ourself, not in anything that we can do. Our strength lies in Him now. And the battles and the sinful struggles that we have have been captured and remedied by regeneration of our heart through the blood of Christ and his work at Calvary. All right, let's move on. Verses 15 through 18. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God and Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So no man can add or take away in reference to the promise of the Spirit through faith. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying there's nothing extra that you can do. 
There's no circumcision required. There's no extra works and that no man makes the promise of the spirit, which is the gospel of Christ that he's referring to here, that work on Calvary, that no man can add to that or change it or declare it invalid or null or void. It is the promise of the spirit. Another thing of note here in verse 14 through 15 is that God keeps his word. Whatever God says he is going to do, he's going to do it. The Bible tells us the promises of God are yea and amen, and God is always faithful, and he keeps his word. So in verse 16, Paul describes this covenant as promises made to Abraham and to his offspring or his seed. So God makes many promises to Abraham in the Genesis narrative, but they all connect more or less directly with two basic promises that he and his offspring would receive the land and be the means of blessing many nations. So in the Septuagint, the promises to Abraham and his offspring involving the land could be interpreted to involve the earth, since the Greek term gi could have either meaning. This seems to be how Paul understands God's covenant promises to Abraham. God promised to bless all the nations of the earth and the whole earth through him and his offspring. So now Paul takes this another further step and he observes that term offspring, and he observes it is singular rather than plural. The Greek word behind this translation, sperma, means seed. Like that English term, it can refer to a quantity of seeds, like he sowed his seed in the field, he planted this seed, um, or a single seed. And the single seed can be described in the plural, meaning he sowed his seeds in the field. Although the Genesis narrative seems to use the term in the collective sense, Paul observes that it is singular, and he believes this foreshadows the single person of Christ. And we'll find that here in verse 17. And he says, um, so he knows, Paul knows that the preceding assertion was, was kind of difficult to follow. So he kind of restates his point and says, this is, this is what I mean. Here in verse 17, says that the Mosaic law, which God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai after God's covenant with Abraham, could not annul the extraordinary, inviolable Abrahamic covenant. That even if human covenants made with a divine oath are inviolable, how much more is a covenant made with God himself as one of the parties in the agreement? The false teachers in Galatia then cannot, they cannot disannul or subordinate God's multinational covenant, worldwide covenant that he had made with Abraham to the ethnically and nationally specific covenant God made with Israel in the Mosaic law. They couldn't do anything to that. God made that promise. And there was nothing that they could do to change that or make it null and void. The Abrahamic covenant came first, and no later covenant can invalidate it. That's what Paul is teaching them here, that it doesn't matter what these Judaizers tell you, Galatians, that the gospel of Christ is the gospel of Christ, and it was promised from the foundations of the earth. Back in Genesis, it was promised to Abraham, and there's nothing that you can do about that. It's always going to be what it is. And God made that promise to Abraham, and it will come to pass. That's what he says in that last part. He says, for if, it, for if the inheritance be of the law, it's no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So Judaizers were trying to promote the law and say that the law had the ability to do these things. But Paul said, no, if, if the inheritance was of the law, it's not a promise. There's, there's no ability for it to be a promise. It's the law. It's there. 
But then he says, God gave it to Abraham by promise. And so he's telling the Galatians that it doesn't matter what the Judaizers say. The promise is the promise that he gave to Abraham. And there's nothing that you can do to change that. And that the covenant that was made with Abraham could not have happened under the law. But because the law had already been confirmed in Christ and the law, which was after the promise had already been established and couldn't make the promise of no effect. So the inheritance wasn't of the law for though if it was from the law, it's not a promise. There's the law is just the law. It's there, like I said. So no, the inheritance and inheritance even more so to Gentiles was Christ. This is the inheritance that was being taught and preached about. And the Bible all throughout the Old Testament is setting a foundation for the promise, the coming of Christ. God gave it to Abraham by promise. Christ had been foreordained from the foundations of the earth for this promise that was given unto Abraham was the promise of the gospel. All right, let's move on and we'll read. Uh, we'll, we're going to read verses 19 through 29 and kind of finish up here. It says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. So what's the purpose of the law? Paul writes, he says, and he kind of answers his own question. He says, it was added because of transgressions until the promise came. That was until Christ came and became the mediator between us and the law. That's what he was saying. What's the purpose of the law? It was added because of man's transgressions until the promise came. And then in verse 21, he says, is the law against the promises of God? No, absolutely not. The law has no ability to give life. If it was able to, there would have been no reason for the promise of Christ. And all are under sin. There's no one that hasn't dealt with sin. So we're all under the law, correct? Being that we're all under sin? Yeah, that, absolutely. The law has not become void. We are still accountable for sin. We still have the ability to sin. But Christ has become the promise for all who believe. Christ has became the propitiation for our sins, for all, not for a chosen few, but to all whom believe in the promise that was given unto Abraham. So, no, it doesn't disregard the law. It doesn't make the law void. It doesn't make it incorrect. No, it, it just means that, yeah, we're still accountable for sin, but Christ has became the propitiation for our sins. He laid down his life for us. And then verse 23 says, But before faith came, the law was our schoolmaster. It was teaching and to bring us unto Christ. Verses 21 through 22, the, the law doesn't lie. It contains the true, perfect will of God perfectly. And if people could keep it, 
God would acknowledge, if if people could keep the law, God would acknowledge that they were in a right relationship with him and would give them life on that basis. But we know that's not the case, or that's not even the law's purpose. Rather, God intended the law to support the Abrahamic covenant by imprisoning everything under sin and creating a standard of living for mankind. For all moral living and moral aptitude comes from God putting it in man. Without God's law or without God putting that in us, men's deeds are evil continually. We know that. So every moral compass that man has is God-given. And the encounter between God's will and the sinful human being, however, it serves God's purpose in fulfilling his covenant with Abraham through those who believe the gospel. For it demonstrates so clearly the futility of any attempt to obtain righteousness in life by keeping the law. We can't obtain anything by keeping the laws, what the Bible's teaching us. It's only by the faith in the gospel of Christ. And it's just like Paul says in Romans chapter 7 and 13. Sin produces death in the human being by means of something good. God's commandment. He says, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and become sinful beyond measure. So sin produces death in the human and man by means of of something good. So if we compare those things, that's why sin produces death is because God has a commandment and that is why sin is sin. So verse 25 through 26. So after faith has come, faith in the work of Christ on the cross, the law no longer is the schoolmaster or the taskmaster. Christ has became the law for us. And so Paul, in context of everything that's been happening in Galatia, he finishes this chapter that it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't matter where you're from or who you are, that if you've put your faith in Christ, then you are heirs according to the promise that was given to Abraham. Verses 27 through 29 says, The Galatians are in Christ Jesus and are sons of God because they experienced union with Christ at the time that they heard and believed the gospel. So what is the promise that Paul is referring to? We've talked about the law, we've talked about faith, but the promise that Paul is referring to The promise is that all can be saved, that whosoever will come under the cross and believe that the work of Christ at Calvary was so powerful that the law is no longer what dictates your sinful nature or not. No, it's the blood of Christ that covers the multitude of sins, and Christ has become the law for us, and through that, we now have that great promise. So thank God for the promise, for where would we be without it? All right, guys, that's all I got. Galatians chapter three. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, I'll uh, leave some links in the description below. Give us some feedback, shoot us an email, let us know your thoughts or some topics that you'd like to go over. Uh, But we appreciate you tuning in. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode for Galatians chapter four. Peace.